When the world is ruled by violence and the soul of mankind fades, the children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the neon maniacs. Episode 7, The Battle of the Bands. Welcome to Episode 7 of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. This week, we'll focus on the Battle of the Bands sequence, including a closer look at the fictional band Jaded that's featured in the movie. But first, we'll pick up where we left off last week, the following morning after the subway sequence. Brian Sauer, Pure Cinema Podcast. You have this other young girl character who's, you know, making monster makeup, shooting her own horror movies, is very fascinated by the idea that monsters could be real. And so she's the other ally. The other person that believes what happened is is her. And this is where I, I think, you know, you could easily say, and maybe people already have, that this feels like something that could be an influence on Stranger Things because you're dealing with monsters in a grounded 80s world uh, and the idea that you do have this convincing of people to do, which happens in Stranger Things, the, the monsters coming from a, another dimension, you know, kids making movies. I mean, there's just things about it that reminds me of something like Stranger Things. Remember me? Please, just go away. But it's about them. To make a long story short, I finally did him in with a pail of water and a blast from the shower. Pail of water and a shower. Gets the bad guys every time. You know, Stephen, after last night, I believe anything. Look, what I'm saying is that the only defense against these things is water. Just plain old water. 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 Uh, my name is Brad Henderson. I am uh, acquisitions and producer over at Terrorvision Films. I mean, we have these movies of the 80s where kind of the kids are the heroes. And, you know, and that's fun. I mean, everything from like Trick or Treat to like the Goonies to, you know, um monster squad it's it's fun to kind of see little kids kind of rule the day and uh or the ones that discover their weakness or something like that you know and and that's that that's always an element that i liked to the movie too is that there's not a whole lot of adults as far as like in that group and they're kind of dealing with their own issues and 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 problem solving themselves because, you know, we all you always have that cliche thing of like the kid sees something as the audience, you see it, you know, the kids, right. They tell adults they don't believe it. And then it just does that cliche thing. 
And I just kind of like how they kind of do their own thing. Very much like Monster Squad. And they just look, we're going to take matters in our own hands, you know? We should do something. What do you suggest? I don't know. The police? They didn't believe you last time. You think they would now? She's right. Four kids and who listens to kids? If only something showed up on my tape. Wait a minute. The band competition is tonight. Right. What did you say? You said that that water kills these freaks? All right. Now, if we can get enough squirt guns to the kids at the dance tonight... It'd be the safest place to be. And, and yeah, and then the Battle of the Bands, I mean, that's a classic 80s trope of, you know, sex comedies. I mean, the first one that comes to mind for me, one of my favorites is Love Lines, which has a really great Battle of the Bands at the end. Um, but this is great because not only is it a Battle of the Bands, but it's a costume dance. So you're combining the Battle of the Bands stuff with costume party slash dance. These are things I absolutely love, you know, people in costume. So then, of course, the monsters can stroll into the dance unrecognized or unmolested because nobody suspects them because everybody's in costume. So that's a great, you know, way to bring them into the scene. But also the bands are on two separate stages, which I think is really cool. So it's actually like two bands divided by like a wall. And so they're both going to take turns playing for the audience and I think that's much more of an interesting battle, if you will, just from a physical setup point of view. Is it really good? Oh, yeah, it's real good. Uh, cutest thing in the school. <laughs> I think so. Oh, welcome. Attention, please. Welcome. This is a battle. A battle to the death. Now, this group here, we are the outlaws. And I'd like to introduce to you our competition tonight, which is a tough bunch of mothers. Jaded. My name is Catherine Valin. I was the production designer on uh, Neon Maniacs. The high school, which of course is supposed to be in San Francisco, the high school of those kids was shot actually, the practical location was Hollywood High. Hollywood High that is famous for having been the high school of many, many famous uh, stars in, uh, in Los Angeles. That was our practical location for the interior of the high school, the corridors where you have bikes driving by, the, the classrooms and, and all that. And one of the door was supposed to open on the amphitheater or the, the ballroom or the gym where take place this big battle of the bands uh, of the near finale of the film. So we open a door and then we cut to a stage. And the stage 
was actually uh, staged at the time of a very famous producer called Roger Corman. But so he had his own stage next to his company and we've rented the Roger Corman stage to set up the Battle of the Bands. In there, my task was to set up the atmosphere where those kids were going to come to dance, have fun. We had a, a heavy metal band and we had the glamour band of the love interest of Stephen. Uh, and I wanted to make the two stage distinct. So heavy metal band, I put some gear and mechanical things in the background to give that feeling, that hardcore, hard metal feel. And then I thought, what am I going to do for Stephen? And something came up to me. I was thinking, this is very strange. This film is called Neon Maniacs. But what about the neon? I don't get the neon. What, there is nothing about neon in this whole film. And that's, that's too bad. That's a bit problematic. So I decided to dress the stage of Stephen with a lot of neons. So at least I would have not lived this film without putting some neons somewhere. So that was the idea behind that uh, set. If you're wondering what the squirt guns are for, well, we plan on really cooking tonight. So watch our smoke. I'm Megan Navarro, lead critic and writer for Bloody Disgusting. The thing about all three characters, Natalie, Paula, Steve, is that they're genuinely nice people that you're rooting for. And Steve is just somebody that comes in a little bit later, obviously is crushing on her. It feels very quintessential 80s character in this like kind of, you think he's the nerdy guy admiring her from afar. And then he finally gets the girl and he puts himself in harm's way over and over and over. And he's willing to believe her when no adult in her life does so he's instantly winsome and then he just out of nowhere comes in and he's like by the way I'm a front man for a band and I'm just gonna jam and it's like well that is one of the more unique paths to being this like heroic protagonist I think I've seen in a while at least in in the 80s my name is Stephen Romano and I am a creative director of Avon Press which is a division of Vinegar Syndrome Publishing so what do you think of the character Stephen no, I always, I always, you know, uh, I always liked him because uh, he's the hero of the movie. You know, he's he he gets called pasta breath. You gotta love that, right? Uh, um, yeah, I always liked him a lot, and and I I knew that that he was the guy, one of the guys from uh, from uh, Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter. And Clyde gets it the worst of anybody in that movie. He gets a freaking like spear straight in his groin. And gets lifted off the ground. <laughs> so it's like a really horrible lingering death. So I have a lot of respect for that too, right? So he comes back hard in the uh, Neon Maniacs. And what's cool about him is that you find out that he's much cooler than you than you realize he was because he turns into Rick Springfield at the end of the movie. <laughs> and, and then whether or not you like the song he sings and wh why wouldn't you, uh, he's just super cool. Jim Branscombe, Cinematic Boy. One of the best like songs ever written for a movie. I guess it's not written for a movie, but Baby Lie. Baby Lie is one of the greatest songs ever written. So I'll I'll take that to my grave. Oh, the baby lied. Like, 
I don't know what about that song is. It's just like it's I guess it's kind of in that Rick Springfield kind of like, you know, power pop vibe, but it's just like really well done in a way that like I can't explain. Like it feels like it should have been a hit single for this movie. Like it should have been like the you know how some horror movies will have a famous well, they'll have a song like like a rap song based in a movie or like, you know, Dream Warriors by Dokken or something like that. It, it, that song feels like it should be one of those songs. Like it should be like top tier horror movie playlist track or something like that. And probably because of just the movie and everything that went behind the scenes, it's not, but it's a, it's a fucking kick-ass song. My name is Patrick Bromley. I wrote the article neon maniacs, an underrated gem that deserved so many sequels on bloody disgusting.com. The metal band exists almost in air quotes. Whereas the outlaws, it's this very sincere, just like declarative love song about a guy who had his heart broken. And I think it's just so cool that the movie pauses for a couple minutes to give us that kind of sincere moment. Let me ruin your evening. The stranger said to me. Hayes and uh, I played Steven in uh, Neon Maniacs. I think that was the uh, um, the Blu-ray uh, Academy Award uh, version. <laughs> Do you remember how you got the gig? Um, you know, at, at that point, I mean, look, you're you're a young actor, and you're out uh, uh, hustling, trying to get gigs. You don't always have the choice of uh what it is that um you know the, of the material and um i can't remember you know the the um, audition process for that one um uh, you know i i do remember unsure about whether or not uh um you know that that it was going to happen and whether or not to do it and um but uh but yes but we went ahead and did it I know you were saying you don't remember much, but is there anything that you do remember? You know that I, I remember certain things about it. Um, uh, some of the you know shooting uh, out in Los Angeles and uh, at Hollywood High School, um, uh, shooting nights there, um, uh, events, hallways, images, and uh, you know things like that. Certainly those band scenes, as I remember, the you know the music scenes happening to. Uh, lip sync that stuff and and do that was uh you know kind of a trip at the at the time and trying to make that work well my name is jim ruland i'm a writer in san diego and my connection to neon maniacs is personal my cousin, Mark Patrick Carducci, wrote the film. I think the, the part of the movie that I'm most fond of is the Battle of the Bands, just because it's such a snapshot of the time. And I, I don't know what Mark had in mind or what he intended, but I'm fairly certain that when he wrote it in the 
late 70s or the early 80s it, it wasn't you know this sunset strip hair metal band that kind of steals the show it's kind of a staple of those 80s movies right where they're supposed to serve as a foil to the other band who are supposed to be virtuous and good and you know have musical talent and perform real music using quotes around that yeah i like to joke around that in some ways that metal band is more dangerous than some of the maniacs My name is Fred Rulin. Back then, my name was Jazzberry. Cut that a little short. Now they call me Jazz. Anyway, I was uh, the guitar player in the band called Jaded during the Battle of the Bands. At the time, I was trying to make it in a music business. I was really trying to get a record deal. But to make money, I worked at a place called Rainbow Kitchen. And it was kind of a unique job because uh, what we did was we would go around, we would have routes where we'd go to offices and buildings and sell lunches to people. Because one of my routes was on the Sunset Strip where I would go to all these record companies, movie companies. Kind of frustrating because here I'm in all these record companies and I'm doing that when I really want to be in the record company making music. Huh? So anyway, so that's how I met Dan because he was doing he was doing that too. So basically that's how Dan and I met. So we were talking at one point and he said, hey, he said, man, I'm starting a band with this really good bass player named Nicky Sharp. He gave me a tape and listened to it. It sounded really good. So I had him come over. And I was living in a small house at the time in North Hollywood. And they came over and we jammed. And it was magic. From that point on, I started working with them. Do you remember how you got the gig on the On Maniacs? Well, uh, well actually, uh, I'm not exactly sure. It's just, I guess Dan... I guess, you know, Dan is very outgoing, and he's a, a very likable person. I don't know how he, he did it, but he said, hey, man, we got an offer to be in a, in a movie. Would you like to do that? I said, I'm in. Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Dan Geras. I'm the drummer in the movie Neon Maniacs. Yes, can you, can you get into how you got the, the gig for Neon Maniacs? How yeah. A, a good old buddy of mine from Buffalo, Frankie Bellino. Uh, Frankie was, I think, maybe assistant director somehow connected. Frankie knew that I had a big. I was around the music scene. I was well connected in, in the scene. Frankie specifically sat sat with me. We had a meeting and said, "Could you put a really killer visual, a good looking band, a good rock and roll band, guys that can play and look good up there?" together and I said no problem give me give me a week and, and I was working with those guys so it was very easy I knew that they all had a great image and and you know they all could play really good they were top guy, top guns around LA so I knew that they could pull it off and then when they, they saw them they were sold on that band they loved that band Frankie loved it it was fun to watch just because after all these years, I forgot which guys were in the band. And now I know from seeing the film, it was Spider Middleman, who used to work with Chucky and the Goddamn Liars. And he was lead singing in the, in the movie. And then there was Jazzberry, the blonde hair guy playing guitar. And we, we, we had a great band together. We, we 
had a uh, production deal going with the same guys, and then me on drums, of course, and the bass player, they found this guy, and none of us know who he is. <laughs> they must have, they must have, did somebody in the production company must have found him. Well, you know, it was really, a couple of things that I thought was really interesting, we went on the set, you know, and I had, I had this jacket that I wore from a previous band I was with, and the, and the ironic thing about it is, it was a jacket with checkerboard on the front. And the bass player, you know, who I, you know, I never met before, I think, he happened to wear a shirt, had checkerboard on it as well. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty uh, coincidental that two people just, you know, didn't pl- we didn't even plan that. And another ironic thing is the jacket that I got, there was a place on Melrose, and the name of the place was called Neomaniacs. That was the name of the And so I have this jacket, so on the label it says Neomaniacs. <laughs> just one letter off from being neon maniac. Do you remember anything Man. about the shoot that night? Mm, I remember, yeah, that they came in the room and they they dimmed the lights real dark and the monster uh, zombie guys were coming in while we were playing. I, I remember that scene, yeah. And then I remember my the, during the shoot the the drums. Uh, collapsed into the platform. I think they didn't bolt it down. Something weird happened. Luckily, nobody was on it when it happened. Yeah, so back to the story. We're playing, and then I think I just got off the drums. It was either before or right after they did one of the shoots, and the whole whole drum set collapsed. All the stuff on the stage. So it was a little haunted. It was a little scary. Wait, so you guys just got off the stage and and it collapsed? It collapsed. I swear there was there were zombies messing with the stage. <laughs> My name is Lucy Howe, and I have a book soon to be released called Heavy Makeup, a book about camp that rocks, the 80s, volume one. My interest in any horror film peaks whenever a rock sequence is included. I also love the concept of fictional bands and films. I liked how Jaded looked all dangerous and dark and the fog rolling out around them and cracking that whip and rocking hard. And the actors were so convincing that I initially thought that Jaded was split Sydney, <laughs> which cracks me up. But the reality of it is that Split Sydney was more of a stripped down band as far as their image. And uh, when you look at Split Sydney compared to the Jaded Band, it's totally different. Split Sydney was actually that they were more laid back, kind of, I get the impression, more true to what they were doing. They were, they were doing their own thing. They wasn't trying to follow after and copy the big hair, the big makeup, all that access that was going on with the glam rock scene. They wore jeans and T-shirts and they had long hair, but, you know, they didn't wear makeup. And they were more akin to, like, Megadeth rather than Poison's look during that time. And Jaded for the movie was really glammed up with makeup and big hair for the film. Oh, my God. 
Hi, this is Chris Beliso from the band Split Sydney. And our song, We Had Enough, was in the movie Neon Maniacs. Yeah, our band, my band formed in 1983. Actually, it was together before then, but I was the longest drummer. I, I got in the band in 1983, and we were originally a cover band, doing like ACDC and, and Ozzy and Led Zeppelin and, and so on and so forth. And then um, we started doing originals around 1986. We were a huge club band in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, and Long Island. We would pack clubs. We actually had one of the biggest you know, lighting and sound systems in, in, in all of New York. It was uh, it was crazy back then in the 80s. That's such a trip. You guys were an East Coast metal band. Absolutely. We played like, um, uh, so we played um, the later years when I was in the band. We, when we did our originals, we were playing a, a cat club in New York, the Limelight. We started playing um, New York City clubs. Yeah. yeah, and then we did open up for Igbe Mountain. Like, we've opened up for some big bands. Um, at, at, we used to play Lemoore's a lot. Lemoore's, the rock capital of Brooklyn. We used to play Lemoore's a lot. And um, all the major clubs in New York we played. You know, it was, it was, uh, we had quite a following. We would pack a thousand people into a club, no problem, you know. And we had huge following. Like I said, we had um, 10,000 watts of lights. We also had a pyrotechnic uh, gentleman that traveled with us. We had flames and bombs going off on stage. It was uh, quite elaborate, actually. And how would you describe the genre of your band? Uh, we weren't really heavy metal. We were more rocking. People compare us to like our original material, plus like the Guns N' Roses of the East Coast, basically. No, no glam, really. No, no makeup or anything like that. It was just you know jeans and t-shirts, pretty much like Guns N' Roses. Almost. How did it come about the project to you guys? Okay, basically, we were in the studio in New York, North Lake Sound in North Lake Plains, New York, and Eddie Solon was the engineer. Uh, he worked with Kiss in the early days. He's big friends with Ace Freely, and, and he was recording. We were doing like a four song EP at North Lake Sound Studios. They got a call, I don't know if it's the owner, Joe Renda, or, or Eddie Solon got a call that they were looking for a song for a horror movie. They went through our material and they thought we had enough to be perfect, perfect for the. Um, for that for that scene, and it just it was just timing, and basically, you know, they sent us a contract and we signed it, and and they gave us I, I think it was like five or six hundred dollars back then. I think we got one lump sum. Do, do people think you're the band in the movie? Basically, they wanted us to fly to, to San Francisco, I believe, where it was filmed, and they didn't have the money and the budget to fly us out, so we we weren't. Those are actors in the film. But we wanted to go, but we, you know, we were young kids. We couldn't afford to fly out out to the West Coast. So um, apparently, it wasn't in the budget to fly us out. So that is our song. We had enough, but those are actors in the movie. The fee, but yeah, we wanted it. We wanted to be in the movie, but they just couldn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. Couldn't fit in the budget. You know. Actually, at the time we were, a little bit after that, we were talking to Atlantic Records, and uh, we never got signed. They were interested in us, but everyone was getting signed at that time in the West Coast on the Sunset Strip. You know, Poison, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Rat, Warren, all these bands were getting signed on the Sunset Strip. So we were in New York, and a lot of bands, you know, they weren't really looking in New York. So that that's why we never got signed, because we should have. I mean, 
we have a lot of other great songs. And, and, and I, to this day, people are like, man, you guys need to get that stuff out and stuff. So, you know, because they were signing all the bands on, on the sun, uh, Sunset Strip in L.A. So, in fact, I went to the movie when it opened. I actually, I had a girlfriend, and we went to the movie when it opened in the theaters because we wanted to, you know, hear the song and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was it was a crazy time. I mean, it was it was surreal hearing your song when you went to the movie theater and, and, and on the screen. It was it was pretty crazy. And, you know, we got a lot of publicity from it. You know, it was it was crazy. But, you know, it's funny. The movie wasn't as big as it is now. I mean, uh, it got into cult status, apparently. And it's actually much bigger now than it was when it came out. So, but like I said, I did go see it. I was blown away when that scene came out. I was like, wow, that band's pretty cool. Uh, lip syncing for the part, you know. Yeah, it, you know, like I said, it was a great band, and we had a great yeah. And our singer, by the way, was a great frontman too. He was an, one of the amazing frontmen. He was he was really great, very theatrical, you know. But like I said, we didn't make we all had long hair, but we didn't have makeup. You know, I wish we could have been in the movie. I really, to this day, you know, apparently wasn't in there. You know, it was obviously a low budget movie, but you know, I I, I would love to have gone far out here. And, and actually be us in the band. Like I said, my singer was really animated. He was great frontman, you know, so, uh, but those guys did a good job. I mean, it was just, I wish we could have been in it, actually been in it, because it was our song, you know, but I'm just, I, I'm just happy to have our song in the movie, you know, because like I said, it's such, it's such a high cult status in the horror uh, movies. We had enough. We had enough. Because I was wondering who these guys are. I'm like, Who's playing our, who's playing Split City? Who are these guys? You know, I think the singer did a good job. He was kind of, he was very animated and stuff. And, and I think uh, he comes off pretty cool. Actually, I thought it was pretty cool. Hi, I'm Dan Jaros. I'm the drummer in the movie Neon Maniacs. So fast forward, Spider died. He passed away. He used to, he had a project going with his, his fiance. And that was Kate, Katie Seagal who ended up working with Married with Children, and then we lost touch, and then I heard through the grapevine that he passed away. And, of course, you know, we were all, we, we did the movie, and, and then we started going on the road, and when he started going on the road, everybody starts losing touch. Yeah, I'm sad to hear about your front man. He had such a great look and appearance on the in the movie. I, am, I was shocked when I heard that, my buddy. I was shocked because he was such a good friend of mine. We, we got along great, and he has so much talent. And, we, and you're right, Spider was a fantastic frontman, and he had great charisma on stage and a great voice and and just just a, a, a real great player. But but I, I you know what? You can't explain what people are feeling inside. I don't know what he was going through at the time. We were, we were, the last time I saw him, we did the movie, and then once after that, we were both working out at the Holiday House spot, and that was the last time I saw him. And, and he was in great shape, so I don't know what happened, what, where, the, where it took a bad turn. I, you know, some people will never tell you what they're really feeling, so I don't, I don't know. I, I remember the last few weeks when I was trying to get rehearsals together, he wasn't answering the phone, and he was kind of like, being a real loner, just not not communicating, and that that's around three months after that when I heard it happen. Well, I was going to ask, with Spider, did he did he take his own life? 
Yeah, he overdosed on heroin. I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, yes, We all go through problems, but you, you gotta beat them. You gotta move forward and keep fighting, you know? Because they'll, they'll drown you if you're drowning them. My name is Sean Robert, and I had the opportunity to design and write the Neon Maniacs trading cards for Terror Vision Records. I love Halloween in a film, especially in 80s horror films when just like the holiday itself pops up. And so when it's in 80s films in particular, like, oh my God, I just, it's the best. So like, those are some of my favorite scenes in, in Karate Kid. I mean, some of the pulls on the costumes are so random. The, the Mr. Miracle that pops up and the Spider-Man and the, the so there's someone in like a like a Ben Cooper Cabbage Patch Kid kind of costume or whatever. That's like, I, I guess that's pretty 1986. But um, I, I love, I don't know, the the aesthetic in those things. And I love that nine times out of 10, it's not like store-bought costumes or, you know, sometimes in these movies, they'll just grab some masks from like Spencer's or something like that and just kind of wear it with a suit and tie. But then then there's like those homemade costumes that are crazy like the shower costume in Karate Kid, or again, like the Mr. Miracle one in, in, in Neon Maniacs. That is Halloween, right? When you when you create your own costume and you spend like a month working on it, and then it's just for the, the two hours that you're going to walk around or go to a party or something like that to show it off. And I, I love that. Especially when the sequence, when the Neon Maniacs are kind of creeping through as people are dancing. It's such a well done, you know, kind of intense horror scene. These kids aren't going to know necessarily that they're being stalked or about to be attacked because it's just another, you know, maybe it's a teacher that dressed up or maybe it's, you know, one of their friends that they did really intense makeup on. But I love that idea, too, where, like, you've got monsters sneaking into a situation where it's like they're completely at home because it's a Halloween dance. But then, you know, they can start slowly ripping out the carnage. Hi, my name is Brian Leonard. I was the associate producer on the film Neon Maniacs. Yeah, the school was honestly the most involved because it had all those special effects too. It had a lot of gags in it, you know, all the deaths and the water and the, and the you know, uh, the electrocutions and, uh, you know, all that stuff. Oh, the, I mean, one silly thing, you know, when, when Doc comes in, is it, the, is it the high school where the security guard is? The, the only thing that I noticed there was funny was the baseball game he's listening to is you can hear some of our crew names in there. Uh, we made fake baseball team. You know, just something silly that that I had not remembered of of uh, doing that. Brian Leonard has finished his warm ups. Here we go. Yanker takes it. Maniac number nine. Doc. Dennis Fisher writes in Fangoria. The custodian's up in his room, and Doc enters with his lab smock, his face mask, black medical bag, hypo and gives the guy ether and knocks him out. We pan around the room and you hear this cracking and tearing and when we come back, Doc is holding this beating heart in his hand and, with his stethoscope, he's listening to the beating heart in his hand and grinning. I'm Dr. Rebecca McHenry. My core area of research is in horror film history, but the surgeon who I think goes by the name of Doc, I just liked him because he was far more brutal than the others. Whereas the others, you know, they're kind of like dancing with people and ambling through the dance. And But the, the surgeon was brutal. 
he takes out a heart. He literally does. He is performing surgery on somebody and takes out a heart. And I mean, they all kind of go with their, their own kind of personalized niche MO based on what they're looking like. Surgeon takes it a step further where that is actually his style of killing people. It's far more brutal than we are seeing from, you know, just the guy who's swinging a samurai sword around in the subway. Yeah, it's the doctor kind of seems out of place to me, even though there's a samurai and an archer and an ape man. The, having someone just dock just seems like, does he take care of the maniacs when they're hurt or something? I don't know. It's like the medic of the group. But yeah, it's just like, I, I love it because that's the thing is that they're just completely all over the place. I'm Alan Apone, makeup effects supervisor for Neon Maniacs. Uh, I'm Mike Spatola, makeup artist. I, I think... Uh, I'm pretty sure the only maniac that was the same through the whole movie was Doc. Oh, you're probably right. Yeah. I think Doc was, nobody played Doc but Andy Devoff. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but everybody else kind of was up for grabs. Yeah, it was like, you know, <laughs> people that came in. But Doc's makeup was so simple. It had just small little wounds. Yeah. You can see that it's Andy Devoff. If we were to put that on anybody else, you'd know it's a different character. That's true. That's true. And you guys had that whole battle of the band sequence where you had to do all the mean, all the maniacs were there. We had a, a larger makeup crew that night. Yeah. Howard Berger came and helped us yeah. from K and B effects and Bruce and Mark and Larry and me and Alan. Yeah. We had a lot of people. Yeah, and there's that great effect when the maniacs gets their head taken off by a fire hose. Crazy. I mean, it really was. I mean, but that was like the 80s. That was the, you know, <laughs> the epitome of that stuff. And 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 my shop was still a young shop. So um, you know, we were still building up a reputation. The dance and you know, the punk bikers, you know, kind of fucking shit up with his motorcycle and stuff like that. Maniac number 10, biker, or also known as punk biker. There's nothing much on the maniacs out there. And the only thing I could figure out with biker, who's also known as punk biker, is that he wears a hat with a Nazi symbol on it. His face looks a bit decayed like a zombie with sunken in eyes and a patch of skin missing from his nose. And his weapon of choice is a chain. The biker wears a leather jacket, which has an emblem in the back. And it says Chain Gang MM. And this is a tag belonging to a real motorcycle gang that spread terror throughout Pittsburgh in the 1960s. They were known for storming taverns, ordering patrons out and threatening their lives to those who disobeyed. And in 1966, nine members were apprehended following the assault of a teenage girl. So it's interesting to see that Biker is from a real gang. So like when they when they they spill out out of the subway and then they're running through the streets and they get on the bus and they get attacked by Mohawk on the bus and they they end up like closing a window a bus window on his arm and it like severs his arm and it's still attached to Steven and attacking him. 
but like there's this idea that like that arm is gonna it grows back later or it gets reattached i like the idea that um they get hurt by water but if they don't get killed by the water then maybe they just slowly grow and mutate back like deadpool does when he gets really messed up in his films but at the same time i also kind of like the idea of the doctor being there like maybe he stitches up the other maniacs when he's not murdering janitors there's so much room for interpretation in this Listen up! Hey, I need your attention. Wait a minute. Maniac number 11, Soldier. The only thing I can pinpoint about Soldier, if you look closely at his helmet, he's wearing a pin. And it's for the 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment which was formed during World War II and later saw action in the Vietnam War. The warrior's weapon is the M16 rifle, which was used in the jungle warfare during Vietnam. So my guess, he's a deceased Vietnam soldier. My name is Alan Aperlo, and I played the soldier in the Maniac film. How did you get the, the role? It was through a uh, uh, casting for uh, extras and they needed some people to play the monsters and they said we got into makeup and i did a week of it as a soldier and uh, you know that's what we basically did we were just walking around as the monsters in the film so i i'm surprised i got a credit on it. it's amazing to hear about this story oh the director was pretty good he you know kept us all uh, uh, getting, uh, you know, going and doing our stuff for the week. You know, sometimes you get really tired, but hey, that was that's life of an extra, you know. So uh, what else do you want to say about it? Do you remember any scenes in particular that you worked on? I just remember the water sequence. That was the one I remember. I mean, the part where it was sprayed with water and it was, you know, splashed and thrown <laughs> and thrown, you know, with, uh, you know, with a you know, whole bunch of, you know, water. I just remember that scene in the film. Oh, was that like uh, when the bands were playing on stage and the, like, the yeah, dance? Yeah, 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 that's what That's what it was. But, uh, you know, I do remember the makeup guys, and that's about, that's all I can remember, putting about three hours of makeup for that low-budget film. So the budget was low, so we knew. But the makeup was good. I remember. Right before we started started recording, you said that you took over for another uh, actor. I think yeah, I did take it for. They told me there was another guy that uh, did it, but he had something else or something like that, you know. But I got the credit in the film, I guess. <laughs> that you're telling me. Cool. We don't know who the first soldier was, <laughs> but right. I do remember that take it. I had to take the water, you know, <laughs> with the you know they just. Threw the water on me. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember that. But the water scene, boom. <laughs> I'm gone. <laughs> I still remember that. Don't run! Use your squirt gun! But come on now, this is no joke! You know, the neon maniacs show up and, you know, and, and they fail to tell everybody that, this, that the, the squirt guns that they've handed out are the only thing that will destroy them, right? So everybody gets, you know, it's a total chaos. 
I do like it when Paula grabs the fire hose because I like the escalation of like, we've got squirk on squirk on squirk on. And then she's like, Ooh, no, I've got a better idea. But some of it helps that I'm just team Paula. Yeah. She kills most of the maniacs. If you think about it, I think except for one. Yep. Yeah, she just flat out decapitates one with the fire hose. Yeah. She's so sweet. She's very like adorable, you know, as an adult watching her. And I, I think that there's something very charming about her gearing up to look like Dracula for the final climactic scene. You know, they're they're getting ready for a bite, like a fight with these neon maniacs that they're expected to descend at any point. And she's like, time out. I got to go dress like Dracula. This is Charles Edward Cohen, Mohawk from the movie Neon Maniac. Do you remember, like, the makeup people strapping all the hoses on you for your effect? When I got killed with, with, with water, when they took the fire hose out on me? Yeah, I, I tell you what, it, it was nothing like, it, it, it was, you know, I'll be honest with you, it was fun being the center of attention for a while there. <laughs> Even at my death scene. <laughs> I, I just, I don't remember, like, a hold up but i do remember wearing some kind of an apparatus and and i think a bunch of goo coming out of me <laughs> and stuff spraying out and i think i was taking my hatchet mistaken i think i was trying to defend my the water hose uh, i think i was using my hatchet to defend myself from the fire hose <laughs> and when i say the fire hose i mean the water that was coming at me, I think I was hatcheting the water. And I just really remember that hose being really strong. And and I remember trying to chop the water from the fire hose coming at me with the hatchet. <laughs> and what I love about this too is like when the carnage does start happening, it really does kind of go off the rails because there's these scavenger characters that they have thrown in with the maniacs, these, these one-eyed lizard-like creatures with meat hooks. And what I love is that their job is to clear the bodies out or to bring them back to the Golden Gate Bridge dimensional gateway portal thing. But like, it gets so crazy in there that they actually attack some of the maniacs and like they, they take the archer and they, they bring him away. And, and I love that because it's, um, when you've watched this movie as many times as I have, it's like it's it's so hilarious when they're like they're they're like turning on each other or they're like I don't even know if it's that they're turning on each other. It's just it's like it's there's so much chaos going on that it's just like they can't control the situation anymore. The scavengers, what they do in the finale just kind of seals it where they're not just taking away human victims anymore. They're also dragging the corpses of their own. So it's almost suggestive that um, they aren't really that beholden, or maybe they're the type of slaves that would turn on their masters if given the right scenario, a scenario that we'll probably never know because there's a whole world that will not get continued in movie form. But yeah, I just, I feel like mythology-wise, they present the most potential. Uh, Doyle McCurley. And you played... The samurai. The uh, Battle of the Band, and, and the girl is uh, holding hands with a guy, and that's when all the monsters come in and wreak havoc. And I'm walking toward them, and I, I pull the sword up, and I come down, and I chop the guy's arm off, and of course, she's still holding his hand when the camera pans to it, and she's supposed to scream. And 
she she said, yeah, I can do that. And then when it came time, she, she choked, and then she choked again. And I was talking to her, hey, you know, it's really easy, just scream. And, and she, she couldn't do it. She was, like, hyperventilating, and she was under pressure. So they ended up dubbing her voice. Uh, they had someone else scream for her. I remember uh, Hayes. What was his first name? Alan, the star? Alan Hayes. Yeah, he was the lead guy, if I remember correctly. He was, I think, maybe, was he number one billing, possibly? I believe so. Uh, yeah, he, uh, when we were shooting, he was on stage, you know, as one of the singers. And then later, of course, we had to turn the cameras around. We had to shoot the monsters coming out. And he ran the wardrobe and, and put on a, uh, a extra outfit. So the tallest character, because we're all like in Halloween outfits, which added to the movie because now everyone was confused who was a bad guy and who was a good guy because, of course, all the maniacs had costumes. And and he actually went in and put on an extra outfit, so he was out in the crowd walking with us, which was, was kind of funny because it's just one of them things you never know about unless someone tells you. And he, he was uh, – I, I didn't speak with him a whole lot, a, a, a time or two, and he was an okay guy. Yes, my name is Clyde Hayes, and uh... – I played Steven in uh, Neon Maniacs. Yeah, we were shooting nights at uh, Hollywood High School, and um, I had not, uh, I'm sure, acclimated to the uh, shooting schedule yet, and I got cut loose early one night. Um, uh, you know, it was a low-budget production, so there were a lot of um, uh, uh, crew trucks. Um, and we were shooting, as I remember, towards the, the, the inner guts of the school and stuff, so you couldn't see a lot of the trucks from the street. And the place was locked up. Um, so they cut me loose one night, and one of the crew uh, let me out, walked me over to one of the gates, unlocked the gate, said goodnight, locked it back up, and I went on my way. And I probably got about three-quarters of a block or so, and um, yeah, this is probably 3 o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden, I got hit with a, a spotlight, and um, uh, yeah, and I think you know on a PA system. And anyway, it was a patrol car, and they had stopped me, and they got out and they started asking me questions. And when I realized that they were just kind of hassling me, I thought they were stopping me for crossing the street jaywalking or something at that hour. And they started asking me what I was doing coming out of Hollywood High School at three o'clock in the morning, and I said, shooting a movie. And I remember they, um, you know, they looked at me. I don't know what the hell I looked like, but obviously I didn't look like I had been shooting a, a movie. And since they couldn't see any of the trucks from their vantage point, they started laughing and harassing me. And I guess because I hadn't been sleeping, I got mad and I probably told them to go fuck themselves and said, I'm going home. And next thing I know, you know, they had thrown me against the car and, and uh, handcuffed me and threw me in the back of their uh, paddy wagon. Um and, uh, you know, until they were going to sort this thing out. And as I recall, in the midst of that, they got a call on the radio about a domestic violence or something that was happening down south, down, uh, um, uh, what is it, down Highland or something. And I remember they, they jumped in the car and they took me with them, and went on this, you know, on this call with them at three o'clock in the morning. And uh, at a certain point, I remember thinking I'm sitting in the back of the patrol car, not knowing what the hell's going on. And, and uh, maybe this is a little bit, uh, some interesting re research that can be done on this at that point. Anyway, 
long story short, um, they went down to this call. Other cars pulled up, so they were eventually able to drive me back to the high school to see if what my, my alibi was legit or not. And they pulled up one of the driveways, put their high beams on, and started honking if anybody would come out because again they could not see where we were shooting eventually one of the crew came out to the gate they got on their pa system and uh they said hey you know is clyde hayes you know you're one of your actors and i remember the crew yelling back yeah that's 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 our lead um anyway the cop car backed out of the driveway with the with the you know guy standing there not knowing if i've been shot mugged kidnapped or whatever the cops drew you know pulled out backed up drove off and took me to my car and uh, started peppering me with questions about what are you guys shooting and you know and uh they're paying for security you guys need security and stuff so it was quite a uh, a swing you know as uh, as the evening drew to a close um and then I remember because they never went back and told, you know, the crew or the director or anything. And, and uh, the next day when I showed up late afternoon, it was pretty funny because I don't think, the, you know, they, they weren't sure if I was going to show up, if I was, you know, being held in jail someplace or, or what had happened. So we all got a good laugh out of that. Yeah, <laughs> but to be like, uh, man, what a such a surreal moment to be working all day and then to just be thrown in the back of a squad car <laughs> and taken to another call did you ever see what happened at the other call by any chance when you were taken there with the cops uh, no it, i remember them pulling up and um, there were a couple of other cop cars uh, that, that that showed up you know simultaneously or, or about that time and and whatever they, you know they left me in the back of the car and, uh, uh, you know, I was handcuffed and just kind of stewing there. And um, so, no, I don't know, but whatever it was, they worked it out. And then they got back in and, you know, they took their sweet time and just, you know, sort of were, uh, um, I suppose, trying to teach me a lesson. That wraps up Episode 7 of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. We'd like to thank Shane McKinney for our opening and closing theme music. This show is written, produced, and edited by your host, Stephen Scarlatta. And thank you for the positive feedback and for all the support of the show. I so greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. And until next time, stay out of the shadows. <laughs>